2: Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. I'm Manoj Kivalramani, and today I have with me my colleagues Anushka Saxena and Amit Kumar. And we are going to be discussing three researchers working at Takshashila who are looking at China and study Chinese foreign policy, Chinese economy, and essentially everything that's happening within the country. And we thought that we'd today catch up and talk about what's going on with Chinese foreign policy. Now, if you've seen social media over the past five, six days, you've probably seen that there's been a big balloon controversy between the US and China and talks that were supposed to happen between the two countries with the visit of the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, have been postponed. But the fact that we got to the point where the two sides were talking and a serious dialogue was supposed to take place is a departure from where the situation was in August last year after the visit of then the leader of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, to Taiwan. Since then, we saw heightened tensions. But then again, from after the 20th Party Congress in October in China, we saw tensions shift away. There was an easing. Xi Jinping went to Bali. He met with Biden. He met with other leaders from the Quad countries, except for the Indian Prime Minister. He subsequently traveled to the Middle East and promised a new sort of proactive diplomacy. We've seen other changes in Chinese foreign policy with the wolf warrior in chief, Zhao Li Jian, being moved away to the Boundary and Ocean Affairs Department of the Foreign Ministry, from being the spokesperson of the Foreign Ministry. And we've seen a new foreign minister being appointed in Gang, who struck somewhat of a moderate tone. So there seems to be some sort of a change that's taking place in Chinese foreign policy. And that's sort of the thing that we're going to discuss today. And I want to throw that question open to Amit and Anushka, as to what do they make of what's going on in what some people are saying is a charm offensive, apparently, from Beijing, so Amit, let's hear your thoughts first.
1: Yeah, so I'll just give a brief context about uh, wolf warrior diplomacy. So during the second term of Xi Jinping, a phenomenon dubbed as uh, wolf warrior diplomacy became quite prevalent among academicians and observers to describe the conduct of Chinese diplomacy with Chinese characteristics, if I may say, which adopted a very hostile and aggressive style of diplomacy while defending in. Uh, safeguarding Chinese interests. And this approach ran quite counter to conventional notion of diplomacy. And as you correctly point out, Zhao Lijian, former spokesperson of Chinese Foreign Ministry, even Yang Zheji, the former director of Central Foreign Affairs Commission. These two faces emerged as, as the leading faces of China's world War Diplomacy. And therefore, even though uh, Xi Jinping, if you would if remember, had in one of the Politburo sessions in 2021 called for projecting a trustworthy, lovable and respectable national image of China the outside world. That is not only open and confident, but also modest and humble. But not many uh, changes were seen on the ground insofar as the conduct of uh, China's diplomacy was concerned. And I think there were reasons why China persisted with this approach. First, I think uh, China was facing a lot of uh, international diplomatic pressure for its actions that sought to change Hong Kong's semi-autonomous status vis-a-vis China, which was uh, guaranteed and governed by uh, the basic law that protected Hong Kong's uh, status for a period of 50 years, beginning in 1997 till 2047. But Xi Jinping seemed uh, quite determined to integrate Hong Kong completely into China, and the the actions were deemed a clear violation of international treaty and the Hong Kong's constitution. So that justified, at least to China, an aggressive approach to defend its position. Secondly, with regard to the inefficient handling of COVID and COVID cases and disseminating of related information in time and the questions relating with regard to the origins of uh, the virus. And it clearly put China on back foot and it was clearly cornered. And that also necessitated uh, some sort of resistant and aggressive response. The Taiwan issue had been burning, as you rightly pointed out, before the Pelosi visit. It has been a constant irritant, and. in uh, China-U.S. relations, and China regards interference over Taiwan as a clear violation of its core interest. And this, this is one issue that has clearly gained a renewed emphasis. Reunification with Taiwan has gained renewed emphasis under Xi. So this is something that they uh, regard as a clear violation of their core national interest. And in addition to these factors, Xi Jinping was eyeing for uh, an unprecedented third term at the 20th Party Congress that concluded November uh, last year. And he did not want to be appear weak on these issues and uh, possibly. These were the uh, factors, I think, uh, why China persisted with that sort of Gulf for- diplomacy. But perhaps now we can see that there are certain changes as it has started to uh, reach out to the US and even Australia. If you see Australia, they have a uh, the trade tensions after Albanese come came to uh, became uh, Australia's prime minister. There have been talks that the trade restrictions will be removed. And so yeah, after uh, Xi Jinping has successfully secured his third term, he has shown some willingness to make tactical adjustments. And we saw this trend in the property sector, tech sector, platform economy, and he scrapped a zero-COVID policy also. So yeah, and these were the reasons. And if you also see China's global image had taken a according to the PwC's uh, latest survey. And, and the reviews went down in countries like Europe, Southeast Asia, and regions such as Europe, Southeast Asia, and even South Korea, where usually perception of Chinese are not very unfavorable. So yeah, these are the things uh, so, I, I think. Yeah.
2: So if I was to sort of summarize the argument, and you can tell me if I'm mischaracterizing it, predominantly you're saying that this wolf warriorism was a product of the environment that China find itself in? And domestic challenges, say, with regard to the 20th Party Congress uh, and the situation in Hong Kong uh, and the nature of the external contestation with the U.S. So it was essentially a choice of stylistic behavior predicated on these sort of base because of these particular challenges that it faced. And now that since the situation has changed, it is requiring a tactical adjustment. Right. If, If I've got it correctly. Right.
1: Yeah. Correctly. Right.
2: So, okay. just, yeah. Anushka, do you agree with him?
0: Right. There's definitely uh, some merit to what Amit has said in the sense that there has been an increased moderation in the kind of foreign policy that is now being observed in the past one, one and a half years. And it has in large part to do with uh, the kind of backlash China has faced because of, say, its uh, regulatory crackdown, crackdown as part of its um, zero COVID strategy or that there is a deepening sense of mistrust towards China because of any predatory policy that countries may see are disrupting their own economic growth. At the same time, of course, there have been domestic compulsions. There is a slump in uh, demand and consumption. There is a kind of harsh, uh, a harsh economic environment that has slowed down the growth of important sectors in the Chinese economy, uh, especially the real estate and property market. And so, yes, uh, I would agree that these kind of domestic and external compulsions have uh, led for uh, China to adopt a more aggressive foreign policy approach in the past uh, four to five years. At the same time, I think foreign policy was anyway becoming a more centralized issue under Xi Jinping. We see this with the changing of the central leading group on foreign affairs to the Central Foreign Affairs Commission of the Central Committee in 2018. And this is significant because it shows greater control over diplomatic affairs and more bureaucratic power to execute interdepartment policy coordination. Now they say that the LSG was seen as ineffective because it had a larger number of members and met only informally a few times a year. And the commission format has changed that as part of Xi's deepening of comprehensive reforms. So now if we look at China's new diplomatic team, which comprises of top diplomat Wang Yi and Foreign Minister Gang, we can observe that Wang Yi has had an illustrious career first as a vice foreign minister, then as Chinese ambassador to Japan and as director of the Taiwan Affairs Office, and then as foreign minister and now the director of the Central Foreign Affairs Commission. And Gang has been relatively early in rising through the ranks in that he was given a ministerial role right after holding the post of ambassador to the US and entering the Central Committee just last year at the 20th Party Congress. He has also, of course, uh, been a foreign ministry spokesperson between 2005 and 2010. And so I particularly do see Gang's promotion to the post of foreign minister as a relative easing down in the quote-unquote, for your foreign policy narrative, because he is clearly well versed in handling the media. And it's a skill, I believe, the Chinese desperately need to conduct foreign affairs henceforth. And so is handling of the US-China relations in a calm and rational manner. And if we uh, look at the foreign policy priorities for China this year... I believe Wang Yi's article for Chushi magazine uh, from earlier this year sets the tone really well. So, for example, he says that on relations with the U.S., he says three things, that we will implement agreements reached by the top leaders of the U.S. and China, we will seek to establish guiding principles of Sino-U.S. relations, and we will correct the course in bilateral ties. So there is some forceful framing of the The outlook on the US here and on relations with Russia, he says that China will deepen strategic mutual trust and mutually beneficial collaboration with Russia. So even if the tone of the foreign policy has become moderate, the things that, like I said, have caused the mistrust in China are bound to continue. But on the other hand, where the charm offensive, as you put it, is being launched and should be launched on priority if China does have to leverage the bad image that Amit talked about, is in its relations with Europe. And on that also, Yi says that China will achieve closer, high-level communication with Europe. And I intend to talk more about that as progress. Finally, on the Taiwan front, I think Beijing has an... uh, increasingly nationalistic foreign policy that has resulted in a hardening position on Taiwan and the US keeps stroking the Taiwan issue which is sort of a red line for the China one that shouldn't be crossed so if one is to believe in Wang Yi's bid on course correction in the US-China bilateral relations then I think uh, this issue is going to keep flaring up in the year to come even though there have been some signs of detente on both sides for example the issue was discussed at the on the sidelines of the g 20 summit in Bali also. And then recently, U.S. uh, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, also said that they do not see an invasion of Taiwan as imminent. So I think there is definitely a dialing down of heat on both sides. And it has to do in part with China uh, kind of stepping back on its aggressive foreign policy narrative.
2: Right. So I suspect that you've probably gone a little bit further than Amit in sort of saying that, you know, that this is uh, not just... uh, and again correct me if i'm reading this wrong that the, that the shift in chinese foreign policy that we are talking about is not just stylistic but is also to a certain degree substantive right that there is there is a conscious effort to try and dial down temperatures with the united states there is a desire to sort of hope potentially work something out with the europeans and that there is an indication that there is also substantive shift not just stylistic shift would you agree with that characterization
0: Most definitely. China has vested interests in preserving stable relations with the US and with Europe. And at the same time, it has to balance out its relations with Russia. So definitely there has to be substantive, meaningful shift in foreign policy. And it has to be shown, it has to be proven in action as much as in words.
2: So you're right. I think that's that's the next question that I have. Is that have we seen any substantive shift? And Amit, let me come to you first with this. So okay, we've seen some individuals being, you know, like say we've seen Chin Gang being placed in the position of the foreign minister. We've seen Charlie Chan being taken out. We've seen say the pressure on Hong Kong is not what it was. There is domestic economic pressure and all of that. But have we seen a substantive shift? Because when we saw the new foreign minister travel to Africa which is, you know, part of the history, a legacy of Chinese diplomacy, that that at the beginning of the year, the foreign minister makes a trip to Africa. Although he broke protocol this time because he stopped over in Bangladesh. That was technically his first stopover. But he reached Africa. And in Africa, he talked about, you know, pushing back against Cold War mentality, camps. He criticized U.S. policy, although his words were not as harsh, but he did criticize U.S. policy. Uh, In the exact same, the meaning substantively was very similar. So has there been some sort of a substantive shift? And again, as we've seen in the last week or so, we've seen this controversy around this balloon, espionage balloon and things like that, which again, I mean, I don't want to blow that into something more than what it is, but have we seen substantive shift? We've also had a report from the Wall Street Journal, which talks about how China's trade with Russia, particularly when it comes to key technologies, which are used which can be useful for dual purpose and which can support the military campaign, uh, has actually expanded in the last year, circumventing American sanctions. We've seen that a lot of Chinese, uh, as per that report, trade data shows that Chinese state-owned enterprises have been engaged in this behavior. So that obviously reduces any potential deniability by the Chinese state. So have we seen any substantive shift? And finally, to make my point that In the Indo-Pacific region, we've seen a desire to engage with Australia. And like one of you rightly pointed out that there is a dialogue between China and Australia going to take place on trade. But still, the restrictions that have been imposed have not gone. uh, And we don't know whether those will be easy. At the same time, when it comes to India, we have not seen any effort from Beijing to moderate or e-styles not even sub- stylistically forget substantively so in a nutshell, are we seeing a substantive shift or is this simply you know uh, same old wine in a much more polite bottle
1: amit yeah so to me logic would suggest that given the environment that has one sees around china and especially the us-led efforts at decoupling from china especially in the field of critical tech such as chip-making semiconductors and uh, AI. And this has led to some real concerns among Chinese policymakers and something that she also pointed out uh, in the just concluded second Politburo Group Study session, uh, when he used the phrase strangulation by uh, the foreign powers and uh, quote technology. And if this materializes, this would immensely impact China's quest for innovation led uh, economic growth. I mean, what uh, that it is seeking to leverage to offset the consequences of slowdown and uh, economic growth. And this will be further accentuated by uh, the recent trends that we have seen in the in its uh, demographic changes uh, declining population aging of the society increasing dependency ratio etc so there are some real concerns and uh, china does have a vested interest in making a paradigm shift in its uh, in the way it conducts its uh, diplomacy also uh, a recent a very interesting thing that i've noticed among chinese media sources is that there has been an immense talk about the need to attract overseas talent to fuel china's innovation and science science and technology industry to compete with the uh, us and comparisons have been uh, made with the us how it has been uh, or remained a center of uh, Attraction for new talents and there's an urge in China to capture not only Chinese uh, talent but uh, talent from across the world to fuel its uh, science and tech uh, innovation industry but a negative image doesn't help so there is the logic would suggest that yes uh, China has a vested interest uh, in making a paradigm shift but you're correct I mean I'm not very sure uh, to what extent this outreach if it is existing would go because it would also depend on how because the US looks quite determined to eliminate and decouple uh, and to restrict China from accessing uh, certain critical technology and and access to certain key uh, sectors. So if uh, you will, and there's a bipartisan support uh, within the US uh, and if that uh, US remains determined, it will be, uh, I think we'll have to wait and see how far does China actually go. And I mean, it stays on this uh, path, of course, correction. With regards to India, yes, I think with uh, Australia and the US, we have seen certain overtures being made. There was a visit was planned uh, by uh, Blinken, which uh, got cancelled, uh, unfortunately, because of this, the uh, Chinese spy balloon. But and they have also talks of uh, trade talks and trade easing of restrictions regard to Australia. But insofar as uh, India's, India is concerned, I think we haven't quite correctly pointed out we have not seen any signs of easing on this front. And I think it could be out of maybe this a thinking among the Chinese that India has uh, very little to offer at this stage and uh, maybe something uh, that it does not have to bargain with. And yeah.
2: Okay, that's interesting. So you're basically saying that, yes, there is some some degree of substantive shift that is taking place, but much more needs to happen. And at the same time, this shift is being done from a pragmatic sort of calculation point of view of what is there to gain by adjusting with certain entities versus the others. Uh, Anushka, your thoughts on this? I mean, again, do you, see, do you actually see substantive shifts taking place? Uh, or is it a case that it is desirable that there will be substantive shifts, but then it's not something that we're seeing at present? I, your thoughts on that?
0: So I would say that not only is it desirable that there be a substantive shift, I believe there are already attempts in that direction. But yes, substantively substantive shifts are yet to be seen in uh, full play. Uh, at the moment. So I'd first like to uh, talk about the spy balloon incident. I think uh, the points that Wang Yi made about how China is going to tackle its US policy this year, where he talked about core cor- course uh, course correction in bilateral relations and establishing guiding principles in China, uh, US relations should also be read with another point that he made about an overall foreign policy approach. But in a manner clearly targeted at the US. He pledged to fight back in the new year against all forms of hegemony, rebuff any attempts by external forces to interfere with China's domestic affairs, as well as defend China's sovereignty and security. I think these were some of the points Amit was referring to. And I think these two points that have to be uh, read together read really well in the context of what happened with the Blinken visit. The Blinken visit episode has significantly derailed hopes for an immediate detente even though there were substantive attempts on Qinggang's and China's side to make US-China peace and stability talks happen. And this is not to say that the visit was going to generate any major positive outcomes for the US-China relations right away, but it would have been a good start in the efforts to dial down the heat. But then domestically, in China, commentators have been really sullen about Blinken's visit publicly. And some commentaries by IR professors and others show distaste For Blinken's policy personally, because of his comments at Anchorage and then the speeches he gave where he more often than he should said, condemned China as quote unquote, the most serious long term challenge to the international order. So in a way, uh, Spygate doesn't just seem to be a stroke of luck. But again, in a way, his comments are understandable given the charged nature of debate on China within America and the intended public audience. Regardless, it doesn't send a good message to Beijing.
2: I think I think they would be much more happier with Blinken than with Mike Pompeo, who was once enemy number one. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, as much as I see Chinese IR professors frothing uh, about statements by Anthony Blinken, I think that they would, they too recognize that you know, somebody who's in the current administration, there's a clear difference between how the current administration is approaching them as opposed to say how the previous or not. Sorry, uh, sorry for that interruption. Please go ahead. No,
0: absolutely. I most definitely, definitely agree with that, which is why I believe that when we discuss uh, whether there has been a substantive shift in the foreign policy narrative within China, we also have to see what the kind of response to that is. And I think Blinken's comments are pretty much in tandem with what trends in US foreign policy and narrative have been. And so I don't think that's kind of a novel development or a bigger threat to China than it already was, say, in the previous administration. But if we uh, look at where the most substantive change has happened or where it, it would ideally be happening this year is Europe. So the point about Europe is critical to address in the question of whether Chinese foreign policy will become more accommodating or not in 2023 is because more than the US, China has to prevent its decoupling with the EU. And this is because EU is one of China's largest trading partners. And if one is to accept the proposition that domestic factors do indeed shape foreign policy, China needs the EU as a ranking customer to meet the domestic economic demands and expand consumption and growth in critical sectors. Um, secondly, good relations with the EU balance the China US rivalry scale. This is why China's charm offensive is launched at full scale on the EU front. First, uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, visited China in November last year, then European Council President Charles Michel in December, and then Italian uh, Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni accepted Xi's invitation to visit Beijing at the G20 summit in December. And now Macron is signaling intent to visit the country as soon as possible. And both Macron and Scholz have opposed decoupling from China, even though they have mentioned reducing uh, dependency. Uh, but again, grave challenges exist in China's EU policy because this is because the most pertinent is the erosion of trust in the latter due to China's inability to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine outright. And this is th- there is absolutely no softening of the stance of China on the Russia-Ukraine war issue and instead more strategic signaling is underway on expanding China-Russia bilateral relations. As you rightly pointed out, uh, reports are suggesting that a great amount of chinese export in especially in dual use components for military equipment is being directed towards russia even as the sanctions regime is underway so as far as the question of accommodation goes there is a great game of balance at play which is on the one hand she is busy wooing its largest trading partner and on the other hand it's ties with russia are advancing on solid footing and this would hence be the most interesting development to watch out for this year i believe especially since china has to achieve its co- quote unquote purpose of resetting its economy and winning back friends. And just quickly on the Issue of strategic tensions with, say, Japan, Korea and India, there is there is little sign of moderation. Like we discussed, border incidents with India have continued and so too has the military pressure against Japan in the East China Sea. Japan also continues to significantly increase its military budget and they want to double it by 2027 and intensify its security relationship with the US and Australia. And a narrative shift is also taking place in Tokyo, where it's Documents and communiques now explicitly name China as the central rationale behind Japan's rapidly changing military posture, which was more subtle, which was by implication in the past, but not so much anymore. And uh, China has also initiated retaliatory measures against both Japan and Korea because they imposed mandatory COVID testing requirements for Chinese citizens. So the one exception indeed that stands out in the Indo-Pacific or among the Quad countries is China's posture towards Australia, where previous uh, punitive economic measures have begun to be removed and ministerial level uh, political contact has resumed. I think just this afternoon, Senator Farrell and um, the, a Chinese diplomat have um, Conversed on video call, and uh, I think the Chinese diplomat has extended an invitation to Senator Farrell to visit Beijing, which has been accepted. So, apart from Australia, China's military foreign policy uh, towards close strategic partners of the US in the Asia Pacific appears to have changed very little, which is why I argued that it is not only important to see whether there is a substantive shift on the Chinese policy front, but also if it's, it's being received and how it is being received in these countries.
2: Okay, that's great. That's a really good sweep of what's taking place. Uh, And I agree with you. I think that there is a, one needs to sort of watch if the substantive shift takes place, because so far, say, with regard to Australia, the punitive trade measures uh, have not been removed. Uh, Although, like you said, dialogue has resumed, uh, which is important, given that uh, it has been nearly three years, uh, three, four years that this dialogue sort of took place. So to my sort of, I have two questions and, uh, you know, brief replies from both of you, the final two questions. Firstly, you know, for India, Anushka, since Amit has probably already speculated on this, so I'll just come to you with this, which is that, you know, we spoke about China trying to sort of improve its relationship and try to sort of at least soften the friction between in its relationship with European countries, with the United States, uh, because even with this balloon incident, I mean, Wang Yi's statement was essentially about not wanting to derail the talks, although that was also accompanied by a really daft foreign ministry statement, which said something to the effect of You know, we've never officially announced these talks, so you know the U.S. can do what it wants to do, which was clearly absurd. But at the end of the day, with India, we've not seen any sort of thaw, or or even an indication that there will be a thaw. And going into an election, India is going into an election year next year, and this is G20 year for India. India is the president of G20, so. Do we anticipate that this warmth that Xi Jinping seems to be radiating nowadays will also impact the ice in Ladakh?
0: So I think there appears to be uh, very little to no sign of release on the Ladakh front or in the India-China relations. We we see uh, the Tawang clash happen uh, and we see that You know, a slew of border talks have yielded little to no results and it has taken a long time for disengagement to happen on some of the most crucial areas of conflict, the five patrolling points uh, that have been uh, making a lot of rounds in the news and in analytical discussions. Uh, And I think this could also have in part to do with the fact that India's relations with uh, Washington are warming. Not entirely though, because Washington uh, India still draws Washington's eye because it fails to take a quote-unquote hardline stance against Russia in the Russia-Ukraine war. Regardless, you know, India and uh, America have announced uh, the creation of an initiative on critical and emerging technologies. And in a way, America's quest uh, to be world leader in artificial intelligence is seeing India's support. India and America are cooperating on the court front. And so these are uh, kind of developments that are drawing China's ire. And so... On the Ladakh front, on the border front, there seem to be no signs of uh, reprieve. And I'm expecting it to continue this way. I'm expecting that there will be some low-key but continued transgressions that will continue to happen along the uh, border. Until and unless there can be some significant or radical kind of foreign policy debate that takes place between the two countries. And this is regardless of the fact that economic cooperation uh, between the two countries and India's kind of debt or the export-import imbalance between China and India, with China being uh, China having the upper hand, has not gone anywhere. India still has a massive kind of. Debt against China and economic, virtually there's no economic decoupling happening at all. But despite this, we see that border tensions continue and this will, and so does the warming up of India US relations. And I think this is likely to keep inviting some form or the other form of aggression from China in the coming few months.
2: You know, yes, the trade deficit is one thing, but it's important to keep in mind that at the end of the day, while Beijing is seemingly reaching out to many other countries, including other quad partners. There was a dialogue between Jin Gang and the Japanese foreign minister also recently. There has been no outreach to India whatsoever. And the new foreign minister has not felt the need to dial his Indian counterpart at all. So it's something that's worth noting. And I think it's uh, it's something that's worth trying to figure out as to why is it that Beijing doesn't feel the need to try and uh, reorient its relationship with India, if it is actually interested in substantive shifts uh, in its policy. Uh, with that, my final question, I, I think, uh, to both of you, and I would appreciate a one-sentence answer or a one-word answer. Is we've seen years of full warriorism. We've seen years of very aggressive diplomacy. We've seen years of assertion on territorial issues, on changing the status quo, whether it was in the South China Sea or in the, on the boundary with Bhutan or with India. We've seen a much more proactive, aggressive foreign policy on issues like development, security, human rights, all of that, which has led to those perceptions falling, which Amit pointed to at the beginning of this conversation in the Pew survey, and of course, in other parts of the world also, which the Pew survey may have not covered, says India. Can this stylistic shift now put the genie back in the bottle? Can you build trust after having gone through not just these years of aggression externally, but also years of internal repression where the system, which seemed to be moving towards some degree of transparency, has closed in on itself. So can you put the genie back in the bottle if you're Xi Jinping? That's my question to both of you. And I would appreciate a brief answer and we can wrap up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, it would be quite difficult uh, given, like you said, uh, the perception has worsened uh, with regard to China. So it would be very difficult, especially uh, if it's a tech war uh, between the U.S. and China intensifies and countries are forced to choose sides. It will be very difficult, say, going forward. But yeah, it needs to be seen. Okay. Anushka?
2: I
0: would say this is definitely a and good needs needs-to-be-seen situation. But yes, if one uh, refers to uh, Liu He's speech at the Davos Forum, I think uh, the way forward for China uh, to go is to continuously harp on the narrative of international cooperation, especially on key issues such as debt, inflation, supply chain resilience and climate change mitigation, as well as the International Division of Labor, which, which did emerge as key themes in his speech. And I would say that despite the substantive attempts at shifting the tone of foreign policy, China would have to assess whether these are being well-received or not at the other end and who are the parties that are yet to receive this substantive shift in in foreign policy engagement as we uh, saw in the case, as we discussed in the case of India. And so until and unless these considerations are made and there is substantive action on the ground, I do not feel that the genie can indeed be put back in the bottle, at least in the short to medium terms. That's
2: all. All right. So with that, we'll call it an end to this conversation. Thank you so much, both of you, for sharing your thoughts. I think this is a really fascinating discussion. And I agree with the fact that I don't think the genie is going to go back in the bottle so easily. You can't be talking about international cooperation and openness while you're in Davos, but going home and talking about self-reliance and dual circulation, and having seizing the commanding heights of competition at home while focusing on domestic circulation so you can't be doing both of those things but then it's something that we'll have to wait and see like you said uh, my sense is also that you can't be you can't end up sort of putting the genie back in the bottle intentions once revealed in this manner are unlikely to be forgotten unless, like you said, there is a significant and substantive change in Chinese behavior on key issues, which I believe are also
1: their core interests.
2: But thank you so much, both of you. And thank you so much, folks, for listening. Thank you.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
2: If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashila.inst or our website takshashila.org.in.